Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning into this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Isaac Reed. He is a senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture, where he has written for the Hedgehog Review and an associate professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. He's the co-editor of the collection Social Theory Now, released in 2017, and the sole author of two books, Interpretation and Social Knowledge, and most recently, Power in Modernity, Agency, Relations, and the Creative Destruction of the King's Two Bodies. The most recent book, Power in Modernity, forms the basis for most of our discussion. It's a great book. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Isaac Reed. Isaac, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You have written uh, a, a book, a book that just came out recently called Power in Modernity. And in it, you think about power relationships and how we, you know, how we sort of act on one, one another and are acted upon and, and these sorts of things. And I wonder like what got you interested in those kinds of questions? Cause it's, in, it's interesting cause your book touches on political theory on, on social theory on sort of everything under the sun. And I mean, what, how did this kind of gestate for you? Like why, what, what, what is it that kind of gets you going about, thinking about power relationships and how we are acted upon and acting upon people in, in modern life. Yeah. Well, sort of two things. Is it, is it so, the DMV like it is for everybody? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's always the DMV. I mean, I think, I think in modern life, um, and of course I consider myself sort of an inheritor of the kind of alienation that Kafka wrote about. So I suppose I've always been interested in power. Um, but I'm an interpretive sociologist and historical sociologist. So I spent a lot of time, uh, especially when I was working on my first book, thinking about meaning, thinking about when, when and how people make meaning out of their lives. And at the end of that book, I sort of arrived at this thing, which is that in the social sciences, or maybe what I would like to call uh, the human sciences, we generally think of meaning and power as opposed. We think that you know, moments of power and domination when we're being crushed under the wheel are not the most meaningful moments in our lives, perhaps. Um, certainly not the DMV, if we're talking about bureaucratic power. But of course, I wanted to think about the two in the same moment and in relationship to other things like authority um, and kind of mix it all together into a soup. And and so I, where I arrived at from that was really this um, interesting nexus what I would call the nexus between delegation and domination. So every one of us in our lives all the time. Uh, it sounds engage. like you could, you could like, that could be like a porn film, like between delegation <laughs> and domination, right? Right. Or some, right, kind right. Of, or some kind of like summer erotic read. Right, 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 right. Like Bed Bath and Beyond is a store and also something else. Right. So, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, a delegation and domination sort of, Right. All of us every day go through delegations. We get someone else to do something for us. We make ourselves the agent. We say, I can do that for you. We're hired to do a job by someone who knows that we're kind of better at that particular 
job, then they would be. So there's tons of delegation all the time. We delegate up and down. You know, we delegate to our rabbi or our pastor the ability to best interpret a text for us. And we tell our children to go get something for us from the store. So, I mean, we all go through delegation all the time. At the same time, embedded in delegation is the possibility that those relationships take like a dark turn, right? That they have embedded in them the possibility that someone is not recognized as fully human anymore, that instead they sort of have a you know, when they're delegated to, they're also dominated because they're made entirely into the agent, you know, of the, of the person who's doing the delegation. So there's this funny way in which this very everyday experience, sending someone to do something for you, is probably related in a long arc of history to some of the worst hierarchies that we would be most likely to judge as uh, um, bad or evil or worthy of our critique. Yeah, like I think of the great Jewish thinker, early 20th century thinker, Martin Buber. He talks about the I-Thou experience, right? That, you know, this is sort of the way he thinks God sees us as I and thou and addresses us by name and as a, as a face and a person. And I think so much of, of late modern life, right, is I-It, right? Like we're, that we're often, you know, we, we treat people as, as objects, not subjects. And you kind of feel like you're being used and controlled or like a tool, more than a person. And I, I, that, right, that, I mean, that, I, I, I take it, I take it that this is like part of what you're getting at, right? That that's, that experience yeah. is uh, demeaning when it happens to you, right? Or frustrating. And yet, and yet we, we live in a complex world where we got to go through DMVs and targets and this and that, and, and we inevitably do it to other people. Right. And, and I would say, I would say, you know, the difficulty for thinking about modernity for, for historical sociologists or just for the human sciences generally is that those, you know, we can all think of really, really bad versions of people being treated as total objects, you know, extreme forms of domination, slavery, or wage theft, and, or, you know, extreme constraint, or violence and all those things. And, and, and then, of course, we also know that everyday life, when you go into the bank, can involve these little moments of dehumanization. But what I would point out is the little ones where you kind of make yourself an object for like a little while and it's actually not that bad, those are the things that give us all the capacities that we love about modern societies. Oh, we exist in this giant system and I can just click a few buttons and change something in my bank account and et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, you know, the, those I-it relationships are complicated. Boober is right that they're and what you're saying, alienating. Like if, if you're in a hunter-gatherer society or even in a medieval pre-modern village or something, like you you know everybody, you know, and everybody knows you and your story and your grandparents' story. And so whether you like or not like each other or these sorts of things, you, you're not going to objectify each other in quite the same way we do just because of the nature of the beast. I mean, most people are living lives where they're connected were they were they interpersonally connected to everyone they're interacting with? So that's right. But my counterpoint to you would be, yes, but those are also the societies in which people are overwhelmingly understood by the category of person they are. That is, your father was the beekeeper. You're the beekeeper. <laughs> you're the beekeeper. You're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your son's going to be the beekeeper. I mean, and it's never changing. I mean, those are so, right. I mean, we hate the anonymity of modern societies. They produce amazing amounts of loneliness, alienation, individuation, etc. And yet, at the same time, those 
anonymities are also what give the possibilities of writing kind of your own story, which is something I think that all moderns really want to do. And I think there's this deep way in which yeah, yeah, those are connected. No, 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 no one in the middle evil village says, I'm going to reinvent myself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah, tired of this place. You know? That's I'm, right. I, that, I, yeah, there's not a lot of rags to riches stories. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of like, um, you know, uh, it's a town full of losers. I'm pulling out of here to win. I mean, like, you know, there's there, there's not a lot of Springsteen songs in a medieval village, explaining that you know once you just leave this New Jersey town behind, you're going to make your make your own life in California. You know, and that's not that's not that's sort of not how that works. And I think that these things sort of go together. So, you know, there's something nice. I mean, as the social theorist um, Georg Zimmel pointed out, you know, uh, on the one hand, the modern metropolis, um, which you walk through, or I guess we walk through less right now during COVID, but, you know, there's something alienated about watching, walking through a modern city because no one recognizes you, but there's also something liberating about that. You can, you know, you know, you, you can navigate the modern city and be social with all these people and get an incredible amount of things done and find your magazine editor and, talk to your editor and teach your students and all this stuff without sort of having to be locked into, oh, you know, there goes, there goes Isaac, the beekeeper, his grandfather yeah, I, was the I, beekeeper. Also, yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> one of the things that's liberating, I think, right. About, about modernity is exactly what you're talking about, right? Like you, there's more uh, opportunity for advance to, to create your own story. There's more egalitarianism. There's less violence. I mean, any score, this is the pinker kind of thesis, right? Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I forget what what the, the, his most recent book was. Basically, about how it's not perfect, but it's the best system we've had on on any score: health, you know, wealth, the violence. But the challenge, I think, like regularly having to explain who you are, right? Sure. Is 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 you know, and, and that's something that I think in late modern life, just you've got to do like all the time. Like you're at a cocktail party, you're at a coffee shop, or at a faculty gathering, or it. At you know at, at, at a Hanukkah thing or whatever, and you see people, and and all of a sudden you 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 get in this place where you have to figure out how to explain to someone who you are, which I think is 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 a very uh, which inevitably reduced to like what do you do, right. but really I mean the or Americans thing, Americans love that right. what do you do I mean the work thing yeah <laughs> but what's your story that's the interesting question right who are you what's your story yeah I think that's right I I would just add to it that. Um, you know, one way to think about social theory is it's sort of elaborated at sets of different sets of concepts with which to attack that question. You know, what what is this thing that's going on in the modern age where you have to explain, you know, who you are? And 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 my book comes from a, you know, um, from from a way of attacking that question, which says, you know, this we can think about this in terms of agency relations. So agency relations are just any time that your principal and you send agent to do something for you, and they're in the law. And legal theorists write about them all the time. And eco you know, economists love to write about them because they're sort of a way to understand, you know, how corporations treat their employees or whatever. And my view is we can also use that kind of thinking in a more cultural way to understand what's going on with the this question of the I in modernity. So my, one of my advisors, Julia Adams has this great paper called one 800, how am I driving? And in that paper, you know, we've all seen those stickers on the back of trucks, right? And like you think, Oh, that truck just cut me off. Should I call that number? And she basically says when it, when that sticker says one 800, how am I driving? Let's look for a second at how that I is actually distributed through the world. So if you call the number, you get a call center, probably not in the United States, 
to whom has been outsourced the job of taking your call from a company called Driver Correct. That company called Driver Correct has been hired by the by the trucking company to check on their drivers. If the complaint gets back all the way to the driver, then we have to ask a bunch of questions about how the driver will represent himself. Does he have a union or is he an owner operator? I mean, basically the I that is on that sticker does not directly refer you know, it does not directly signify the guy sitting in that seat. It signifies this incredibly long chain of strange agency relationships where everybody's acting for everybody else in some kind of confusing way. And that's the modern world. So it's not only you're at a Hanukkah party and then the next day you're at work and you have to explain who you are. It's that you're doing that. And when you're doing that, you're embedded in different relationships of delegation, right? You sort of, you know, you really have this uh, you know, you, you're really stuck inside these immense overlapping chains and some of them lead, you have no idea where, and yet they're very consequential for how you think of yourself or what kinds of things constrain you or enable you, things like that. So you talk in the beginning of your book, and as someone who's been in Christian religious circles and things. I love that you talk about the term rector, right? This is this great Anglican Episcopal term, the rector, right? This is, but but you talk about the rector, and the rector's like the king or the, you know, the emperor or whatever. And 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 the rector, he's kind of the he's he's the Mac Daddy, the daddy of the Macs, right? And 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 yet he can't do everything himself, right? I mean, of course, like he's got some sort of symbolic authority. That's why he. It's usually he. Sometimes a she, but like usually he. And and the rector then has to sort of uh, has this kind of second body or this extension of like a, the sheriff of Nottingham. All these people are, you know, hunting down Robin of Loxley. Like they're they're all kind of the rector, the king, the emperor. Like they they're all part of that of that person's ability to hold the realm together, right? And yet that but this is the, some of the tension, right? Because you, the rector's wondering, are they really on my side? Are they just doing this because they know I can pay them well, or this and that, and then. The, and then the, the, the you know the, the agent of the rector is thinking, well, I mean, I don't know, I mean, maybe I could be rector someday, or, yeah. You know, like I could move up the chain. So there's, so immediate. So is it sort of like once you get in these political relationships, tell society together, everybody's always kind of thinking like, like it's like a Woody Allen neurosis, right? Like, do they really? I mean, am I really okay? I mean, that's. I, I mean, I don't know if is my agent really for me? Right, <laughs> right, right. Do and, I really want to serve this rector? And so, right. Right. You have this kind of alienation that emerges just yes, in order to get things done. Yes, yes. And that's everywhere and at all times, right? So, so we're all, and I think all humans throughout history, even in non-modern societies, probably had some of these anxieties in the sense of, right, I mean, do I really want to go with this Hollywood agent? He represents, you know, 40 other people. Is he really working for me or is he working for the more famous actress down the road? I mean, you know, I mean, that's a kind of endemic human tension and and what i try to say about this is that you know there's some kind of recurrent human trait by the way ha ha howard stern does this great thing of ron goldstein he's and he's talking about like imagining how hollywood agents are and he's 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 imitating this guy who imagines lives in like detroit or something and he's he's but he's imagined how He's like, yeah, that woman from uh, Game of Thrones, Khaleesi. I mean, you think she could act? I mean, she was doing dinner theater in Missouri. I mean, I guess she could kind of act. Right, right. So that's you'll, the tension. You take your top off and ride a dragon, and you'll be an actor. <laughs> By the way, the best thing, the best thing in Game of Thrones, I know you're a Game of Thrones guy, right? Like, The best thing is, like, I'm imagining this agent. 
calling that guy at the because the end where Tyrion gives that speech was like, well, Bran the Broken, he's got the best story, and he talked with the 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 the, the, the one eyed Raven and all this, and you're like thinking. Uh, you know, and, and you wonder why the new Prince of Dorne isn't like. Uh, I don't, excuse me, I don't know what the one-eyed Raven is. <laughs> you, I just imagine the, the Hollywood agent going, "I got a great role for you. You're going to be in Game of Thrones. I'm going to be in Game of Thrones. What are you going to be? You're going to be the new Prince of Dorne. <laughs> you got no lines, <laughs> but you'll have five. You're going to be the new Prince of Dorne. I mean, it's great. You were doing dinner theater in Missouri. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, I think that. I think the Game of Thrones is really useful here because I I do think that the book is sort of about how so we've always had all these anxieties and everybody's always had people acting for them, including bad agents in one form or another. I mean, it's not like there wasn't power and delegation and domination before modern societies. But what I try to show is that, you know, this idea of like the rector as king who has a kind of second body that gets carried around the realm, you know, which is I mean, that's. That's a big part of Game of Thrones, actually. It's kind of feudal society. There's all this kind of signification. There's this big question. I mean, it's a great agency dynamic between whoever's sitting on the Iron Throne and the Hand of the King. I mean, that is a principal agent dynamic. It's like, oh, does the Hand of the King? Oh, it's a, you know, and then you can always blame the Hand of the King. It's the Hand of the King's fault. We should probably chop his head off. You know, bad agent, bad agent, right? Um, so, bad, bad. <laughs> so, so, but on the other hand, you know, what I tried to show is that, you know, this idea that keeps recurring, we have like the one big man on campus or whatever who is, and we all kind of do our politics by saying, oh, well, I actually am the best agent of the king and you're not actually the best agent of the king. You know, I, you know, Sheriff of Nottingham, I actually am. That's why you're no good, et cetera. I mean, that's a very recurrent sort of human thing. But then, you know, in modernity, you know, the modern political revolutions are absolutely about destroying this way of signifying of that what we do and it opens this huge negative space into which rush all these other ways of managing these anxieties, agency relationships about uh, all these other ways of holding the realm together. And that's, I mean, Game of Thrones is a nice way to think about that. You write in the book about George Washington. It's interesting because, you know, you think of someone like John Adams who wanted to give him all these Royal titles and Washington kind of balked at that. Right. And was, and you, you talk about like the way people treated Washington and it's almost in the book you talk about uh, like one of the whiskey rebellions, all these things that, that I mean, Washington becomes sort of emblematic. It seems like for you, this, this transitional problematic figure, right? Because he's the father of the country. We love him. He's, he rides a horse. He's, he's, you know, he, he's, and yet we're mocking it. We're, we're doing some things we probably wouldn't do with a traditional rector figure. Yes. And, and, and this is, and he, it, for you, it seems like a, a really good yeah. example for you of a figure that like encapsulates the transitional problem. Yes. Yes. And it encapsulates. Yes, that's exactly right. Because, because well, Washington, on the one hand, there's this kind of instinct early in the American Republic to sort of turn him into a kind of kingly figure. And he has a lot of charisma, and when they have to crush the Whiskey Rebellion, he rides out to meet the troops who are going to crush it. But then, you know, there are all these guys in the Whiskey Rebellion, they fought for Washington in the Revolutionary War. And they're basically, at some point, like, okay, well, he's not the king, so we feel that our rights are being trampled on, so whatever. You know, <laughs> you know, and, and we see this again and again, and one of the things that rushes in to kind of replace the king some notion of the people or 
you know, one metaphor of it that, that appears very early in American modernity is the sort of band of brothers who, you know, in, uh, at that time, they're, they're all white men who are looking across at each other saying, oh, we're all equal. We don't, that's why we don't need a king because each of us is a rector in our own house and that's why we like property and that's why we don't need kingship and that's why we have a republic because we just send people into office to work for us. We don't need a king. We just need civil servants to work for the people. That's, that's what a, pre that's what a president is. And that, you know, there, you know, and there's some really funny, I mean, you know, sort of, and in dark ways, funny, funny instances of this. I mean, the kind of Kings to bodies thing or the game of Thrones world, you know, organizes like a lot of fighting and treaty making in the early modern North America, like between sort of 1600 and 1800. There's a lot of, I mean, everybody's, you know, you get together to end a war between the Iroquois empire and the Spanish empire and the British empire. And everybody's talking about how, oh, well, you know, according to, you know, I speak here for King George III and blah, 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 blah. And everyone's speaking for their big rector. And that's how you sort of do politics. That's how you work things out. Then, then the, you know, the U.S. American legions fight the Alliance of Ohio Indians and win this big victory in, in 1794. And, you know, some of the leaders of the Ohio Alliance come to the negotiating table to end, to the treaty. And they're like, oh, okay, well, listen, we've got these uh, letters here from George Washington that explain that we always get to hunt here. And the Americans are like, who's George Washington? We don't care. We don't care. We don't care what your stupid letters. He's not the king. You know, and, and in, in particular, the guy who's running the army is basically like, yeah, I'm going to be writing the treaty, not the president. And, you know, those are the kinds of weird switches that you get in the kind of weird world of modernity that, you know, suddenly yeah, yeah, yeah. people are like, oh, I can be sarcastic about how George Washington has wooden teeth. I mean, what an idiot, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and, and one of the things is, so I first came across your book through an essay, like a sort of summary, kind of excerpted, you know, thing you wrote called The King's Two Bodies and the Hedgehog Review, who you're connected with at UVA. And one of the things that I found so fascinating about that piece, which is, you know, again, a, a sort of, you know, ex excerpted from your book and kind of reworked, but like, is that this idea that like, so the issue now is like in pre-modernity, I'm sure people didn't love the king or all the time, or whatever, but or the rector, you know, the the emperor. But like, there's this kind of symbolic power to it that, that that. And so, what's interesting is like, the king still has two bodies, but right away, half the culture hates the king's second body. So, like, if you're, I mean, I remember listening to Howard Stern interview Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he said, you know, when he ran for office, you know, my friends told me Arnold, like, he has the thing you need to understand, like. When you make a movie, but it's not people may not love it, but they don't hate you. They just don't go see the movie. But they're going to have to deal with the fact that fifty percent or more will not like you just because you wake up in the morning and you're the other party. And he talked about how that was like working through that was really like accepting that was like really helpful and it helped him get into politics and and you know negotiate what he wanted to do politically. And I, but that is. Something that the kind of yeah, pre-modern king, erector, the, the contentiousness, where like basically it's it, it's it will screw you. It's just cause it, why is it wrong? It's because Obama said it, or it's because Trump said it. It's you know, and and so basically you, the king's second body or the rector, like is is not a source of kind of connection, but alienation in late modernity. It's right, just, right, right. Well, and, 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 you know, I think this is where it's, we really have a wonderful opportunity to be clear. It's not like pre-modern societies didn't have politics. 
there, I mean, they were full of people saying, you know, you are the worst possible representative of the king. That's why we're kicking you out and accusing you of treason. They were full of contention in these various ways. Absolutely. But, but at the same time, you know, it's absolutely true when you open this space of all these other ways to organize hierarchical relationships, then suddenly other formats of contention sneak in. And so when the king's two bodies comes back and we obsess about presidents and what is it like in family life in the White House and has the president gained weight or lost weight and, you know, Bill Clinton likes Big Macs and what does that really mean and all that kind of stuff. When we do that, we do that in a very different context in the, in the modern era where suddenly we're saying that and we're like, oh, you know, Bill Clinton's first body is profane and it's because he stands for this horrible profane thing in the country, which is the Democratic Party. Right. And so so the, the politics of sacred and profane suddenly become immensely more complex because it's not like people stop profaning things. I mean, I think we know that at least about uh, late modern societies. But I mean, it's a deeply polarized society. There's all kinds of profanation going on all the time. But but, you know, it's happening in these weird conditions where on the one hand, yes, we still have the myth of the king's two bodies. We still have presidential seals. We still talk about presidents as if they're sort of the head of the nation in some kind of familial way. And at the same time, of course, we live in a deeply alienated society in which everyone is cynical about power all the time and is in the business of explaining why the president's second body is actually a profane one. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think you heard this conversation because you know, full disclosure, you and I have talked outside this podcast, but like, this conversation I had recently with David French, and we're, and one of the things that I find fascinating is that in both parties, in political debates, we allow people to run as though they're running as a rector, a pre-modern rector, right? I'm going to do this. I'm going to change the healthcare system. I'm going to... And everyone's going to get a pony, and the pony out of its its mouth will, will you know, be dispensed soft serve ice cream. And da-da-da. You know, I, I mean, but it was interesting. Like, I thought, like... In this year's Democratic debates, it, there was a pleasant like surprise where people stopped sort of challenging that. Well, how are you going to get through Congress, and how are you going to get through this, and how are you going to like? But but this is interesting because we know damn well, right, that these people are not going to be able to do any of this. Like that that there's a bureaucratic system, and especially in the United States, it's by it's not a bug; it's a feature of the system right. that you have a hard time doing this stuff unless there's massive consensus, and you know you can get big public projects done. And so, and yet, like, don't you think we mythologize the presidency? So for the debates, we just say, okay, let's let them debate like they're going to run for king of the universe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you do when you run the universe? Right. And what do you do when you run the universe? Yes, I mean, I think that's true. Although I would say, you know, what I mean, it's really interesting to think about the long arc of American modernity in this regard. I mean, on the one hand, if you had looked at conservative cartoons. Uh, during uh, FDR's presidency, you would have seen a bunch of people complaining that he was a king. He was canceling the Constitution. He was doing all this stuff that was beyond his office, etc. And after FDR, we saw a kind of, um, you know, decline in the power of the presidency. And then it, it starts to increase into what we now call the imperial presidency. So we're sort of at a, at a point right now in American cultural politics where the president is immensely important for setting tone and mood and all these things and, and and there's all this you know extra power that seems to constantly be accruing to the office and so under those conditions it doesn't surprise me entirely that people run in a kind of kingly way um and i you know i i think it's i think i think you're right about of course about 
grid, you know, sort of about, well, you know, actually sort of gridlock is supposed to be part of the system, the checks and balances, you know, gridlock is what we call checks and balances when we don't like, <laughs> don't like them. Right. I mean, uh, um, I, you're right about that. I guess underneath that, I would just say, I mean, as a student of political culture, that there's always been this tension between, you know, fantasizing about the return of a really good King who will save America on the one hand and sort of getting down to the dirty work of trying to, uh, negotiate in a democratic way, small d democratic way about how to live together, which of course is always, you know, messy and full of compromises and Machiavelli and stuff and all kinds of back and forth horse trading and pork barrel politics and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, every election season, we get this sort of other thing going on where everyone is tapping into the narrative of the good king um, who will ride in on a horse and save everyone. Um, apparently a horse with a lot of ice cream. I mean that, you know, and I, I you know, I, I sort of, I sort of, I sort of agree. I just think that those, those, those cultural currents are, are kind of always intertwined in some kind of complicated way in American modernity. And there's always this attempt to ascribe to the president sort of meaning far beyond, let's say, uh, or a presidential candidate, ascribe to a presidential candidate meaning beyond his or her policy ideas. In fact, to win the presidency, you sort of have to have a myth, right? You can't just have plans. You have to kind of engage the, the mythos of America in some way or another. And I would say that to a large degree, you know, presidential candidates sort of rise and fall, and especially in the primaries, in the, in the degree to which they're able to do this. Of course, there's power policy. But even if your myth is also just the art of the possible, right? Because I think that's what happened in the Democratic primary, right? The myth of, of like, hey, we're going to have this egalitarian, progressive, you know, we're going to really make this country more free and fair and, and equitable. And then there's just the myth is the art of the possible, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, hey, we, we can get things done, which, you know, which is a kind of myth in itself. I mean, because you... Sure. Nobody gets anything done right now. I mean, like it, it's it's a fascinating. So let me ask you this. So I'm switching gears yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, you say you write something that you say because modernity is not only a set of processes but also a mood mm -hmm. and form of consciousness. Mm -hmm. It may be impossible to track these protean forces of social transformation in a straightforward manner as one follows a river on a map. You, so you teach undergrads, right? How do you like the the term modern, right? Is a term we throw around all the time, right? I mean, in 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 public life, in you know, in, in private conversations and academic conversations. I mean, you know, academics fight over modernity, postmodernity. People just talk about this is the modern world. Come on, this is right, you know, right. like this is people. I mean, so when you're talking like to undergrads that are you know unpacking the stuff for the first time, like how do you explain to them what it means to be modern? It's a good question. So, I mean, first you get kind of out on the table, you know, the big economic technological things that everybody agrees on, right? So you can get, you know, you can talk pretty quickly about what it means to have a market economy. You can talk pretty quickly about um, science and tech and, you know, what you have to have in place to have, you know, a society that has a sufficient um, science to feed its industri industrial and post-industrial technology. You sort of get that stuff out on the table. And then you basically say, okay, what else? What else are we, what else are we really talking about here? And then the kind of cultural and political stuff comes in. And that's when you get the really difficult, but also I think important discussions of political culture, 
the role of religion. I mean that, and, and then and then and then then I start talking about sort of whether modern societies are disenchanted, which is that people don't accept magical explanations anymore, or is it that modern societies are especially differentiated? Every every sphere has kind of got its own logic, and that, then we get into some of those questions. And and when you say that, when you say that, as opposed to like if you're a hunter gatherer society. That's kind of the opposite. Right? Everybody's got to know how to do everything. Yes, everybody knows how to fish, hunt, pick berries. Everybody, like all, all the men, women, whatever. Every everybody knows how to do everything. Versus now, no one knows how to do anything <laughs> unless it's your hobby. Like I mean, yeah, yeah. You do what you do, and maybe yeah. And the swell well, and the big idea, I mean, which is from Max Weber, right? For differentiation, is that the that that especially in modernity, the different spheres are no longer sort of sewn together by a you know, by, by a unifying background set of meanings. So if back when Europe was called Christendom, the unifying back, I mean, of course there were people who did politics and ran the state and there were people who studied and wrote books and there were people who were farmers, but a lot of people kind of had some notion in the background, these things were somehow connected together. Um, and we can see that, right? I mean, most of the art from medieval Europe is uh, about religion, right? And in a differentiated society, you know, the pursuit of what is beautiful and what is ugly via art and art critics. I mean, modern art is not very, you know, is not very theological, let's say. Simultaneously, in, in a differentiated society, theology kind of goes off on its own. It has an Im immense tradition. Everybody is studying all that. You can get a PhD. You can do all these things. You know, the law. Okay, the law. You know, if you walk into a law school. I mean, this is interesting, right? This is a differentiated society. If I were to walk over from the sociology department where I work at UVA and into the law school, even if we shared certain texts or we were reading the same thing, in some ways the habits of thought would be different. It's just a different it's world. A different world. Yeah. And we all have this experience all the time. You know, it's like, oh, so you, you know, like how do lawyers and judges and people in law school talk about the rest of the world well partially they just they have a way of operating that they just know they'll never quite be able to fully explain at its highest level of expertise to anybody else because they're in their own world it's the same you know and i would say it would be the same thing with art um max weber said you know politics in modernity is it's like its own vocation you have to really be you know, down with a certain kind of pursuit of power if you're going to be a politician. And we all know that when someone says they're going into politics, what do we say? Oh, that person is ready to accept a whole aspect of how to operate that many of us are not ready to accept. Uh, you know, what, if you don't want to go into politics, it's because you don't want to live the vocation of like running up the score so you can win that election by four points instead of two points. But, you know, because you can say something really bad about the other guy's wife, you know, I mean, you know, you don't want that world. Right. And Weber says like tough, you know, you want to do politics. That's what it is in the modern era. And that's because of differentiation. So differentiation, all these spheres have their own logics and we don't know as modern individuals, we no longer know what links them together. Right. We don't, we don't actually think that people who are going to art school are also figuring out the meaning of God. We don't think that those two things are happening at the same time. I think in a lot of societies, one way or another, we did think those two things were happening at the same time. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you talk a lot about in your book about authorship, right? And like the sense of like, you know, in the pre-modern world, when you're working for the rector, you assume you understand that everything has the rector seal in it. You don't you don't get to own anything. You know, like people don't have the sense of this is my project. It's interesting because doesn't Max Weber, the you know great sociologist, say that this is part like. I, as I remember, like his stuff, I think I guess in economy and society and stuff, and he says like like I think it's economy and society. 
or maybe it's the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism, or probably, probably both. But like he, he says, like if, if you're sitting in the 15th century or something, late 15th century, and you're looking at Arabia, the Middle East, China, and Europe, which is who's going to run? Who's going to run away with global power? Your, your last bet is Europe, right? I mean, like it, they're all technological powers. They all have cities. But one of the things Weber talks about, right, is the sense of like that he thinks, I guess it's in Protestant work ethic and spirit of capitalism, I guess, but like where basically this idea where Luther and Calvin, the individual and the Protestant work ethic and this, the sense that the individual has a calling. And that means like, and, and I remember when it, somebody was teaching me this and they were saying like, basically like, you know, you have this great Christmas story, right? Well, well Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem to be registered for the census because that's where Joseph was from. And he has to go to Nazareth and hundreds of, and like, that kind of thing. And the professor was saying, like, basically, China and, and, and the Middle East still had this kind of idea that you're from where you're from. And, like, and, and, and that what happened in modern Europe was through Protestantism, this sense of, like, you have a call from God. You're individual. You're just, so you're, you don't have to go back to Bethlehem every time. And he thinks there's something about this thing about author. Like, it connects to this idea I, in your work I read about authorship. Like, something about that conception of, of, of the individual, the thouness, the calling, the, the person that, that allows Europe, which is, seems to be at the back end of the race to, to actually kind of, because then what you can do economically, you can move people from here to here and here to there and there to there. Like you could, there's this sort of fluidity that you can do with agency that doesn't seem to be quite as possible yeah. uh, in those other two countries. Well, I mean, and that's certainly the strong version of Weber's hypothesis about the rise of the West. I mean, I think that I would, what I would say in response to that, because I am not a, I'm a heterodox uh, Weberian. I was sort of trained by a a Weberian feminist or feminist Weberian and think, think, think a little bit differently about, about the sort of uh, question of the West and the rest. But what I would say is that, you know, the strong version of Weber hypothesis is. I I just, I just want to hear you say like, I was trained by a feminist Viberian heterodox and and our memoir was from domination <laughs> right. Like, right 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 well you know i mean you have to you have to trade with smart people and 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 and, and um uh you know i i i right i mean i so 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 what i would say about this is that is that you know the the really strong Weber hypothesis is that it's this cultural stuff that comes from Protestant individualism that kind of reshapes the economies and the polities of Europe in some kind of way that allows, uh, you know, that sort of opens the door to certain kinds of economic um, productivity and other things that, you know, Karl Marx was worried about, like, um, you know, and which, you know, von Hayek would like, right, which is that you can kind of move people around, you can have markets and everything and all this kind of stuff. That's the strong sort of Weber hypothesis. It's so interesting when you talk about about von Hayek, because like Hayek, like, it's funny when you talk about immigration policy today, and you hear the most radical people on immigration that are open borders people. They're not liberals. They're libertarians. <laughs> because the libertarians are like, well, it doesn't make sense. This person's in Haiti and they're really smart and they could get a job at IBM and do this. So, so you're killing everything. You, you know, there, there's almost this non accounting for culture and, and what makes people a people like it, it, it. But it's just interesting. A real consistent sort of libertarian 
politically, you mean? Economic, yeah, sure, sure, of course. Sure, sure. Political, economic, they, 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 they find borders insane, right? Because right. they just kind of look at, they, you know, they, they, well, this person can serve the whole market economy, right. right, right, right. I mean, you know, I mean, I think, I think, it, and so, I mean, I, I guess I would, I, I sort of agree that um, some individual expectation of authorship is constitutive of the modern age. I think I'm, I'm I think it probably comes from multiple sources um sort of across the globe because the globe's pretty interconnected already by 15 by 1500 i think and and you know you have to kind of you have to kind of parse some of this stuff out with the stuff that weber didn't spend much time talking about you know um the black atlantic and um uh, you know all these kinds of forms of cultural interchange etc um however i mean i think that that you're correct that there is this thing in the modern world where people expect to be the authors of their own actions. And, you know, the way I would put it is, you know, if you went to a dinner party in any society, really any society that takes individual, uh, civil liberties as a mark of good order, any society in which, um, there's some notion that you're responsible legally for your actions alone. And if you sat down at that dinner party and was like, yeah, you know, when I was working on that book, um, you know, I just, I just kept hearing the voice of the sacred leader in my, in my, in my ear. And, uh, you know, as long as, as long as, uh, Donald Trump or Barack Obama kept talking, I just kept writing. So I didn't really write it myself. And I don't really think I deserve all the money that I got for like selling it. Right. I mean, no, that's not, how, that's not how we talk. That's not how we talk. Now we might talk. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. We might talk about, you know, I mean, you can watch it in American politics on the left and the right. I mean, you can, you know, Mitt Romney's it versus Elizabeth Warren, we might talk about, well, you know, actually it takes a team of people to write a book. And I was supported by my family. And thank goodness I was part of this, you know, institution at UVA that let me write my book and all that stuff. And so we could talk about, well, you know, authorship is actually a team and, you know, and, and then someone else might say, no, 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 you know, in the end, you know, individuals have to come up with their own ideas. And that's why we have intellectual property rights and all that stuff. But like, my point is that, you know, the premise of the conversation the premise of the conversation is one in which we have expectations about being able to be the authors of our own lives. Um, and I don't see those as expectations that modern people around the world are ready to give up anytime soon. I don't see those as, uh, I see those as constitutive of the modern order. And I don't see those as, as getting really less, no matter how many crises there are. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're going to see, see people, give up this idea that they're the author of their own actions. Um, and, you know, even privatized religion in the modern era is evidence of this. So maybe you were inspired. Like, like so basically you're, you're saying the handmaid's tale is not an option. Like, because that, cause that's right. really, I mean, right. Like, I mean, that's what you're talking. I mean, I, for those who haven't seen the show, you have this religious revival and you get this hyper kind of fascist sort of regime, like, you know, that, that, it looks kind of like Saudi Arabia in some ways, like, you know, a, a Christian Saudi Arabia, but like, but you, and that, but you do see in there, there's no authorship anymore, right? You work for the Gilead, you work for the, I mean, it, it kind of, and that, I mean, it, 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 it may be the thing that, that actually like proves what you're saying that like, it's just, even if there's a revolution, we're not going to go back to that. We're not going to go back to, I mean, we, you know, it, yeah, I mean, really we, interesting. There, if there's a revolution. Yeah, yeah really interesting questions, Scott. I mean, so, so there's two ways to interpret that, right? So, and in, in, in the light of the stuff that's in my book. So one of them is, you know, you look across the spectrum of, you know, Emile Durkheim, Max Weber, Franz Fanon, the, you know, the, the anti-colonial revolutionary radical intellectual, all of them have the expectation 
that what you know one wants in modern life is to be recognized as the author of one's own action you know when the king's two ba- bodies comes back in a modern context it's hyper it can be hyper pathological it can be hyper pathological because we have seen you know um you know, I, I think European fascism maybe being the best example of this, but of course there are lots of different kinds of examples. I mean, Stalin in every classroom, picture of Stalin in every classroom, you know, radio dresses, you know, I mean, all that kind of stuff. I mean, we have seen this thing happen where, you know, people are so alienated by the modern world that they reach for, you know, sacred kingship in a modern context. And I think that that tends to be a disaster because for one very simple reason, Scott, I mean, which is that, I mean, if you actually go back to Elizabeth I, I mean, what could she actually control? Did she have a state of any serious capacity, like the states that were built in the 20th century? What, she had, she had a CIA? She had, she had an FBI? She had, like, a, you know, a tracker on everybody's no, phone? This is sort of like what, what you're saying is, like, after the bad breakup, you're probably not going to pick your 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 next perfect partner, <laughs> right? Right. 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 <laughs> but, I mean, you know, I mean, like, when you're, you're probably not gonna like these kinds of things it's attempt to find the opposite of your partner kind of thing like you're probably not that's probably not gonna yeah yeah and and also by the way you know when the king's two bodies was you know the organizing theme as i try to show in the book when king's two bodies was the organizing theme in um british colonial america you know in colonial virginia and uh colonial Massachusetts, when that was the way we organized, like people, powerful people organized doing politics, not the excluded, but the powerful, when that was like, it took a long time to get across the Atlantic ocean. You know, if the King was unhappy with you, it took a long time. Uh, um, you know, that's not the world we live in now. So, you know, if we actually throw Kings up into the top of the political structure who are true, you know, authoritarians in the in the etymological sense of they think that they are the author of all of the actions. You know, we have built systems of power uh, that are I- immense and extensive. So, you know, modern authoritarianism is terrifying in a way that pre-modern kingship, I mean, you know, what? Like Charles, you know, Charles II was going to you know, you know, was was gonna was gonna nuke Jamestown. I mean, you know, there's, I mean, there, there, you know, the 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 level the level of state power that's available to authoritarians today is extraordinary, extraordinary compared to the stuff that we associate with pre-modern societies, where there's all this talk of sacred kingship and queenship and the emperor and whatever. But you know, the emperor's three months away. Yeah, most of us live in late modernity a better life than most kings and queens. You can get food. Ex- when you want it, you get better booze, you get better this, you get better that. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it is, it, you say something in your book that I love and it, it, liminality reveals regime. The, the rendering of the world of hierarchy that occurs in revolt has the feel of emergency thinking. We find during such moments that the contemporaries who are living through revolt pour forth their words in search of a reason, interpretation, a, co- a cognitive adjustment to the threats on display. So I, I like that the whole liminal, the, the liminal space, right? Where like basically where things don't feel, where things feel unsettled, where all of a sudden, you know, things feel a little out of sort. Things feel disorienting. Things feel like the foundations are shaking, that sort of thing. What you're saying is, right, I, I, I take it, is that like these moments are like, it's when things feel disorienting that you actually, you, the fish maybe for a second gets the ability to think about the water it's swimming 
and which normally we just can't do it. I mean, the human condition is such that you can't, you can't, if you're a concert pianist, you can't think about it, your fingering and play the concerto, or you can't, if you're Tiger Woods, you can't really think about the mechanics of your golf swing. You can do it on the driving range, but you're playing, you can't do it. You've got to just play. And, and, but there are these moments, right? I, I take what you're saying there is that there are these moments where it's actually possible when things get unsettled for us to think about the water. Yes, swimming. absolutely. I mean, the one thing I would say is in a modern differentiated society, you know, the concert pianist has effectively via, via the social order outsourced the job of thinking that to some kind of alienated music critic, right? So most of the time we alienate, you know, most of the time, most of the time we outsource our political philosophy to alienated intellectuals who look at the long arc of American modernity and, say some cranky things and aren't really in the game. But when there is a crisis, my view is, and this is really, I mean, this is really where I'm like a historical sociologist interested in political philosophy, because my view is, is when there's a crisis, suddenly everybody's a political philosopher, right? Because then you find out people are writing letters. That's what I discovered in the archives. People are writing letters back and forth during the Whiskey Rebellion. There's this crisis. These guys aren't paying their taxes. They're burning down the barns of tax inspectors. This is the new law for the, you know, uh, for the USA. And we have to do this because otherwise it won't be the guys in the government are saying, you know, otherwise we won't be physically, you know, fiscally solvent. So all of a sudden there's a crisis. And now every letter people are talking about, what does it really mean to have a society for the people? You know, what does it really mean to do X and Y and Z? And so um, my view is that in these liminal moments of crisis, that's when you see the efflorescence of language that reveals where everybody stands because they're not in the habits of everyday life anymore. They're sort of having to kind of justify every action. And that's when you get a good look at where people really stand. That's interesting. Justify every act. Cause I feel like, when when you say a sentence like justify every action, normally we mean that in a moral sense or something like we you you uh, I always think about like when I've when I've talked about this religious context, I always think about like when somebody else does the thing you did that was wrong, it was awful. When you did it, it was kind of understandable. <laughs> right, right. It's a you have a rationalization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so this is so. But, but yeah, like the the most of the time, like when you're thinking about like going to the store or whether you pay the tax on the whiskey or all this stuff, like you you don't. There's so much, so many actions you don't have to come up with a rationalization for or a reason for. Well, you're saying these liminal moments, these li- moments where this where where the the sands are shifting. All of a sudden, everybody's got to come up with explanations and justifications for things that they never had to think about before. Right, right, right. And so, you know, the transition period, American Revolution, early American Republic, into having this kind of raucous republic slash, you know, um, uh, sort of, you know, democracy that the founding founding elites weren't really expecting, um, you know, that kind of stuff in, in a transition period like that, that's when all of a sudden everybody's a political philosopher. Like they're explaining like, right. So they're, they're I mean, they're just the whiskey rebellion. It's, it, it's, those guys are busy. I mean, they're farmers. Um, the reason why they turn their grain into whiskey is because it's easier to take it across the mountains and sell it. And it's not like they don't have stuff to do, but when the crisis comes, they're writing out these long letters. They're having these long meetings where they talk to each other about, well, you know, what does it really mean to have a society that's for the people? I don't think the society really is for the people. Let me give you my, you know, five reasons why. And that's when you see this, that's when you see this kind of stuff come out. Um, 
Now, I mean, I would say to go back to an early part of the conversation is that, you know, I think, I think, you know, as modernity advances in the sense of longer and longer and more and more complex agency chains, you know, the, 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 the difficulties that come with these crises and with justifications, I mean, just get more and more intense, right? So, you know, justifying who stands for what and for what reasons is, you know, really hard in, in, in a world where everyone is sort of interdependent on everyone else in this immensely complex way. And that, you know, I think we're seeing that now in, in sort of late modernity, you know, we have these immense interconnections and we seem to lack a vocabulary for really understanding them or being able to explain to ourselves why we hold one position or another one. I mean, that's the sort of funny way in which, you know, the nation state is with us more than ever in some ways, but is less compelling than it used to be because of interconnections. I mean, you know, the, and, and this, this, is this, is this why you're doing your work to help people figure that out? I mean, it, practically when you get up in the morning, are you thinking like, Hey, if I'm, if I, I'm trying to explain to someone why I'm doing what I'm doing, that I'm trying to help people figure out how to tell their story in this world we live in. Cause basically you're like, what I get from your book is like, look with all the things that are harder about late modern life, uh, there's a lot more good than bad. I mean, we have a lot more freedom and there's a lot more inclusion. There's a lot more welcome for people that have been tra traditionally marginalized. Mm -hmm. And so it, 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 it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that weighs you down or, or like that gets you out of bed in the morning or that like keeps you going that like, hey, we got to figure yeah. this out. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. We, we like we, we have to tell the story, or 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 the whole thing's going to fall apart, and then we lose we lose refrigeration, penicillin, women's rights, right, right, and game. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like those are the bad things these. to lose for sure. I mean, so so I have two answers to that question. I mean, one, I'm a little bit more of a pessimist, pessimistic, alienated intellectual than that. You know, I think you know one of the big things about that you learn in social theory, kind of whether you like it or not, when you start training in it is, you know, what I refer to as, you know, the depredations of modernity and what I talk about in the book as, you know, there's really three power positions, you know, there's rector, actor, and other, and, you know, there's, um, famous Marxist economist, Joan Robinson, you know, had this slogan, you know, the only thing more miserable than being exploited by capitalism is uh, not being exploited by capitalism, right? If you're left completely outside, <laughs> right? If, you, I mean, if you're not anybody's agent and nobody ever thinks that you have a project, you know, then you're really radically excluded. And we, we, when we're studying the modern world, we have to recognize, you know, Steven Pinker can you know, talk all he wants about the, the, the wonderful modern world. And many of the things he says are, of course, true. But we have to recognize the history of modern barbarism as, as sort of central to the social systems of modernity. We can't, we can't say that we can't say that this, that the triangular slave trade and the Holocaust were not essential features of the modern. So my first answer is like, I'm actually very, you know, I'm very, you know, yeah, very, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very intent, you know, and what I want, so I'm very intent on studying these contradictions as, you know, as they have sort of together make up modernity, you know, all these promises of freedom and then these kind of quite radical exclusions of people from the possibility of humanity, right? Being recognized, right? Boober, Boober is a great example. So, right. I'm, I'm, I like Boober and it's the real question. How can you be recognized as a vow? But of course, you know, 
you know, Puber's question is also the Jewish question, which is, you know, how are we going to survive in a society that thinks that we are subhuman? Um, you know, and, and, and so, so the first thing I would say is like, there's, there's, there's dark, dark, dark stuff. It's inside the modern. And one thing that I want my work to show is, you know, we ought, we ought to be able to soberly think about that dark stuff at the same time as we plan on how, how to fix it, you know? Um, and I think, you know, do, do you think that, do you think modernity is, is particularly pernicious on this? I mean, I remember Cornel West saying in a seminar once, if you would have told Aristotle, he was white. He's like, what? I'm Greek. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. You know, that, that, that you, you, there's something about like the, the structure of this stuff and without the King's two bodies and stuff, or, or the King's two bodies transformed in ways that are, uh, that lead to kind of alienation. Do you think like there's almost like more need to dominate, more need to exclude, yeah. more need to kind of? So, so I mean, that's a really good question. It, I mean, that's the question about what's the relationship of my book to the kind of um, critical tradition, um, uh, you know, in studying the Black Atlantic and you know, you know, the, you know, these essential works of history and social science that have shown us how much race and racialization are a creation of the last 500 years. Um, and you're right. Of course you're right about Aristotle. So what I would say in relationship to that stuff is, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I love Paul Gilroy and I, I am, and, and, and West is great too. And they're right. And what I would just say about what I'm trying to say about the King's two bodies is when you destroy, a, you know, a particularly kind of, long-standing way of holding the society together all kinds of other stuff can rush in and and lot and and the stuff that rushes in can be really pernicious or you know way better i mean that's that's the point about modernity as like a negative space so 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 absolutely when you, you know if it's no longer the case that what makes you legitimate is you carry the sign of the king in your pocket oh i've got a letter that was signed by a guy who signed you know who signed in place of the king or actually really signed in place of another guy who signed in place of the king and that makes me legitimate i mean so and furthermore like we talked about what makes you trust agents i mean in the modern world one of the most common and most pernicious ways that people have decided who do we trust as our agents is, you know, do I have racial commonality with them? Right. I mean, you know, th these yeah, are the yeah, people that, yeah, we, that, yeah. That, that can be allowed into the American government, you know, I, I mean, and so, and so, and so, I mean, I, you know, certainly the negative space created by the destruction of the King's two bodies allows these, um, you know, really dark forces of, you know, ranking the, racial order like you saw in american textbooks all the way into the 20th century i mean right that was i would say that that that's one of the things that can can rush in to replace the space that was left by the king um you know i mean because when you have the king you can kind of negotiate with everybody at the edge there's a certain flexibility there's you know this, this I, I saw this in the archives this happened all the time right so the english before the american revolution the Brits who are in Virginia, they're always like, oh, listen, listen, we like you Susquehannocks, you know, we need you to fight with us against the Dutch to protect these, you know, economic assets that we have. And, you know, all we need is just sign this little thing. We'll do a little ritual. Oh, good. Like you're subjects of the king now. Like, let's do our thing. Right. You could do all this flexible stuff. You know, race, race and racialization is notoriously unflexible about who gets to be human, you know, um, and you know, as we know, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's militated against things like the universalism of Christianity where, you know, once, okay, well, you know, once you said you're converted, you, we recognize you as a person too. I mean, you know, so, so I do think that there are these dark things, 
that West, for example, talks about um, that have rushed in in the modern world. I do. I do. And I think when I get up in the morning, I partially think about how to communicate those. But here's the other thing I really want to communicate. I really want to communicate in the book this sort of contradiction between the version of agency where you become the agent of someone else or someone else's project and the heroic version of agency that we all secretly hold on to inside ourselves because we're modern people, which is that I will author it. I will stand up to the great forces against me. I will be the Clint Eastwood figure who finally stands up for everything that's good. And those two things are in contradiction in a way that is really hard to get rid of in the modern world. They sort of come together, even though they're the exact opposite. Because you've got to invent your own story. I mean, you don't, you know, for most of pre-modern life, people tell you, you have sacred texts, you have big stories, you got the king's two bodies, everything that tells you, look, this is what it means to be a successful man or woman. This is what it means to be a dutiful son or daughter, a good, a good beekeeper, a good this, a good person in the realm, you know, these things. And not that you can't be rebel from that, but it takes real guts to rebel, to be a heretic. This is uh, uh, Peter Berger's like the heretical imperative. Like it takes real guts to be a heretic. Like it, it, it's really hard. Now by necessity, you have to be a heretic, right? Like you can't, you, you have to be this kind of individual and yet you're this radical individual looking for solidarity, which is kind of the, the, the hard, thing that seems to be at, at, at the heart of yes the kind of late modern story right that you what we, we want to be an individual that, that that's our own kind of heretic that's telling the our own story with our own truth and yet also we want to be and i would that, say and i mean here i would have colleagues who really disagree with me i mean i would say we're we you know there's something human not only about seeking solidarity but seeking authority I mean, I, you know, I mean, you know, people want to, people yeah, want to be yeah, told yeah, yeah. if you do this thing, I can guarantee that you are a good person because you are working for the good project. And, you know, I mean, Emmanuel Kant is basically saying like, no, you have to make up your own mind. That's the whole deal. You don't have anyone to tell you what to do anymore. <laughs> this is every post-apocalyptic thing, right? Whether it's The Walking Dead or Battlestar Galactica or whatever it is, every post-apocalyptic narrative reveals that we want to reconstruct yes. authority yes. and yes. meaning, right? Like, like we don't, we, we, we don't. Nobody's like, nobody goes, all right, finally it's overthrown and now we can do whatever the hell we want. It's always the the, the rush to reconstruct. Yeah. I think, you know, what I'm trying to point out is that we're in this weird situation in the, in the modern world where we really, we really think that we ought to all be the authors of our own actions. And I just want to say for the record that I actually, I really think that too. And I think that the modern project is to kind of deliver deliver the dignitas of the king the second body of the king to every single person and that is what humanism is and i believe in that project however to do that project we have to build these massive organizations of allies and people embedded in bureaucratic agency relationships and so then then all of a sudden you're standing there and you're like okay i did all of this because we all did this all together because we really believe that each one of us is the author of their own actions but we look around and we just say all i am is an agent of 17 other people you know i can you know i have seven bosses right i mean it's a classic like complaint about bureaucracy you know it's in like office space or whatever you know oh you didn't submit your tps reports well you know i submitted them to the other six people in that you know that movie office space was like he's all you know it's like you know that's what bureaucracy Bureaucracy is is like it turns out you have seven bosses and you are not your own agent at all and this was all supposedly built so you could be your own agent so that's the contradiction of the modern and I think one way to think about the 
late modern is that some of these contradictions are becoming very extreme. Um, we really expect to be the heroic authors of our own actions. Everyone's got their self-projection into the digital world that is absolutely about your own story. And at the same time, everyone is completely beholden to more and more and more of these chains of agency all the time. So it's sort of like a rubber band that is being stretched and stretched and stretched and stretched, you know, as we get, you know, and, and, and that's, that, that's where we are. Well, I don't know what the answers are, but I know that anybody looking to engage in the conversation, ask the questions, um, they could do a lot worse than starting with all of your work. Um, cause you're really a uh, leading light on the, on these kind of things. And thanks for writing power and modernity. And thanks for spending some thanks time so talking thanks, with me yeah. about it. Thanks for listening to this episode of give and take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes, write a review, give it a rating, share the love and goodness. Or go on social media, share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.